Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, I have some smart and funny ladies for you. Erin Jackson is back. Erin is one of the fastest rising comedians in New York City, and she made her Netflix debut on season two of Tiffany Haddish Presents They Ready. She currently writes for the hit Netflix show, The Upshaws, and has appeared on Late Night with Seth Meyers, Conan, and The Ella DeGeneres Show. Check out her comedy album, Grudgery, on iTunes. The doctor is in Professor Christina Greer. Professor Christina Greer is an associate professor of political science at Fordham University, author of Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream. And Professor Greer is currently working on a manuscript detailing the political contributions of Barbara Jordan, Fannie Lou Emmer, and Stacey Abrams. She is a frequent political commentary on several media outlets, primarily MSNBC, WNYC and New York One, and is often quoted in media outlets such as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and the AP. She's the co-host of the New York-centered podcast Fact-NYC, and she is the political analyst at The Griot. As well, Christina hosts a podcast quiz show for The Griot. It's called The Blackest Questions. Go to thegriot.com and get your game on. I hope to be on there and get my black questions answered. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast. And Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or a donation. Just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friends like us. Special shout out to our Patreon friends. It's because of you we keep going. And now for our golden friends, you have the option to watch our recording live backstage. Just go to Patreon backslash friends like us and be golden. Yes, to our friends TV and Stacy. Thank you for being there every week backstage, you golden friends, you. Merch is available. We have t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, face masks, and tank tops. They're all available. Just go to marinafranklin.com. Weekly on my YouTube channel, I go live with my assistant, Evelyn Frick, my wacky friend, Dave Dreskow. We give updates to the show, shout out fans who leave reviews, and we have surprise guest friends from the podcast that stop by. Like last week, we had Yamanika. And sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. With friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask still if you want to. It's not gone. Get vaccinated. Booster up. And Black Lives Matter. And welcome to Friends Like Us. Christina, you didn't go to fam, did you? No, I didn't. Okay. But a friend of mine got me. I have a whole bunch of family members who did. Mm-hmm. Cousins. But a friend of mine bought me all these sweatshirts and I was rocking it. My dad was like, what are you doing with the fam shirt? I went to Tufts. <laughs> And he was like, you know, your grandfather got his master's from there. And I was like, what? Oh, wow. I, I knew my grandparents went to Tennessee State. So I just thought Tennessee State. So now I rock all this fam gear because yeah. it reminds me of my grandpa. Um, of your he got his He got an education degree. And I knew that Aaron was a bison. You know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like the Morehouse man is a trope and the Howard bisons. You know? You know where they are at all times. We're going to let you know. You're going you're gonna to know. <laughs> I do love it, though, because it just it does feel like no matter where you are, 
it's like you meet Howard people and they're immediately connected in a, in a way that a lot of people who went to different universities, you know, it's like, oh, we're jumbos. But like, let's be clear. I went to an HWCU. I didn't go to an HBCU. So like it was the university was set up for the production of white knowledge and like the, the camaraderie is there. But it's not the same as like if I had gone to Howard or Hampton or Spelman or, or FAM or, you know, any of the other. What is it, 117 HBCUs that are? I'm not exactly sure the number. I was just talking about this. Yeah, definitely over 100. I want to welcome Denise. We we were just saying that TB is the only one who joins us on this uh, live for our Golden Friends. And Denise, you're here for the first time. Welcome. You can chat in the chat box. So this is this is for you because you support us. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all for supporting Friends Like Us. I've been a guest on Friends Like Us, I think, since 2015. Right. Yeah. We were just talking about 2015. That's yeah. crazy. How time flies. It's like, what? Yes. On the... Larry Wilmore show. Wilmore Nightly show. Mm-hmm. The Nightly show. That special, that special episode after he said something about Black women, and he had to have a special episode, and he had me, Marina... Issa Rae and Jackie Reed talking about sort of being black women and dating and work life and all this other stuff. Yeah, because I think my comment that kind of went viral, which I rarely do, but I was so excited for because they were saying that black women, we got this look or we got this attitude. And I'm like, what you doing <laughs> to make us look at you that way? It's something you're doing. <laughs> you know, it's like. I'll never f forget Chris Rock actually saying that. We shared a green room. That That's how we oh, became right. chatty. You remember they had us each in, we had we were two and two in green rooms. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh my God. God, we were babies. I know. I was, that was like well, not really a baby. And I was like, I remember I was like the only one on the panel who was married. So like that was a whole thing. And I said, you know, some men come with assembly required, which is true and true. <laughs> <laughs> it was true then, and it's true now. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I haven't had a man in, I don't know how, oh, this is a whole other podcast, but I, like, been single for, since before the pandemic now, so I'm going on almost four years now. That's like, I'm a nun. <laughs> I've just joined Silver Singles, or Singles, Shut up, Marie. yeah. <laughs> What the deuce? First of all, you're like 20 years old, so like cut it out. I'm not 20. I just I, I just did my facial, so I look like it. But no, I'm in my 50s, girl. Well, I had dinner with your dear friend, Pat Brown, over the summer. We hadn't seen each other since the, the pandemic. So I we get together. Uh, I just, you know, first of all, like I love you and like all your crew. So Pat and I somehow talking on online and then it's like, oh, let's get together. And Pat told me how old she was. I swear to you, I, I literally thought Pat was like, maybe my age. But I was like, she seems more mature than me. But also, she looks younger than, than, than I am. So I was like, I don't know. She's like late 30s, maybe early 40s. When she told me her age, we were in a restaurant, a crowded restaurant. But I was like, shut up. And like <laughs> Literally, everyone like turns around and like forks drop. Because they're like, why is this woman screaming in a restaurant? I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So, like, I don't know what it is about you comedians. Maybe it's the laughter, but I'm like, you guys all look like you're, like, 26 years old. Maybe. Well, we avoid it. We avoid adulthood. <laughs> we we do a, uh, avoid adulthood like the plague, basically. That's what we do. 
that's how we are. Yeah. And it does keep us young, you know, and a lot of my my decisions have been in the in the comedy world. So, yeah. And I didn't have kids, you know, I don't know if that does it, too. Yeah, but that's part of it. I did not have kids. I have I have slept. I don't have, you know, I mean, not until menopause. Obviously, I have sleep. I have nights where I stay up and stuff. That's just part of it. But before then, I, you know, I see my my younger siblings running around, chasing the kids, not getting night's sleep. It's, yeah, that, that'll do something. Yeah, you take it time. easy. You call Marina. Uh, Marina, you want to go to lunch? She'd be like, I can't. I have a show at 11 p.m. I can't leave the house. It's too soon. Like, I'm like, you chilling all day. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. That is I have to true. go somewhere at midnight. That's the same way. <laughs> Like, girl. Pat is the same way. She hates going out during the day. We did do uh, yesterday, though. I saw Pat at uh, Ginny Saldana. She um, had her play or her her one woman show about dating and the tr- the trials and tribulations of online dating. It's a uh, advice from a TT, I believe it's called TT advice, and it's um, it was so much fun, Pat. Yamanika and I were all there supporting her and it was so much fun. And it was like, yeah, we were, this was the first time we've done anything out during the day like that. It was, it was, for me, I was like this, Where but was it was it? a Where Sunday was show? at the triad theater. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I haven't been to in a long time. It was interesting. Cause I haven't been to that. That space used to be used for comedy. And now I guess they're coming back. A lot of these places are coming back after the pandemic. A lot of the venues are starting. I'm even starting to do more shows in different locations than I went. I've veered off. I've, I ventured to the New York Comedy Club for the first time last week. And it was like, whoa, a different scene in a while it, since the pandemic. Oh, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I, I only go to the... Uh, Sorry, the the comedy cellar because it's the only trusted space I I feel, and now um, since I'm feeling a little better about saying to people, I'll bring my own microphone. Please respect that, and they listen to it. And if they do it, and I trust New York Comedy Club, they seem to be doing really well, and they they also police the room very well. So if I see that's going on, especially in this day and age, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna venture out. But I, I I'm always like. At, at this point, I'm not going anywhere where I have to like battle a crowd, battle my right to wear a mask or bring my own microphone. Mm-mm. So, yeah. Well, I, I saw that. Um, so in my class, you know, Fordham's sort of like it's professor's choice. And I was like, the choice is I got stuff to do. Everybody wears a mask. And I'm like, if you're not wearing a mask, you are not prepared for class. Like if you don't ha- like not having a pen and not having a mask are like the same thing. Like you are not ready to learn. But, you know, lots of professors are like, I don't like masks. My students don't have to wear masks. And I'm like, I can't afford to get sick. Like that throws off my whole schedule of teaching and research and all this other stuff. But it's amazing how like we're all in these buildings. And at my campus, none of the windows open for safety reasons. So it's like we're in classrooms with zero windows. Or if you have windows, they don't open. So there's no fresh air. And a it's 35 students and me, and all you hear the entire lecture is because they all live in a dorm together. And so I'm just like, the fact that people aren't wearing masks, like, just trips me out. But I also want to say, when you all are talking about the comedy club, I saw that Caroline's closed. And I never went to Caroline's, but that's a huge deal for that iconic comedy club to close, right? I mean, it'd been there for like 30 years or something. Yeah. Did you, did you perform there, Aaron, or...? 
Not a lot. Not a lot. I mean, obviously we all perform there, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, me and yeah, I, and I was out here. So when I just was looking on, I didn't hear any rumblings of it. I had been kind of disconnected from, you know, New York stand up. And I was like, wait, what? Yeah. That, that was surprising. And they took a long time to come back like open after COVID, right? Like they were like the last club. I feel like to come back online. Yeah. They, she's, she, in the news, they say that she wanted to stay, but they raised the rent and she just couldn't do it. It was like, they kept, I, I don't know what's going on. It, that's a space. That's a big space in Times Square. It has to be very expensive. I mean, that place has been struggling even before the pandemic to get people in there, really, you know, and pay that rent. So it's kind of like it was coming. I felt like it was coming for quite some time, but I never thought it would actually happen. I thought Caroline had, you know, she's wealthy. I figured she would try some way to pull through. I thought the comic strip would close before Caroline's. I'm amazed that the comic strip is still open. Um, But yeah, Caroline's closed. Um, I did not frequent that place for quite some time. But I like if Caroline did like an event um, for women, like she would do the women's fun and stuff, I would I would be a part of that because it's mostly a headline club. So unless you're like a headliner you're not like a major headliner, one that can fill like that many seats. They don't really book you for it. So I didn't. Yeah. And it's um, interesting because they stopped, you know, Gotham used to be mostly that right on the weekends. And then they went to like a versus Christina, just in case, like uh, versus like a showcase show club, like the, the seller where there's like, you know, five people doing 20 minutes. And I feel like they're fine. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder if the format, of Caroline's requires that you're paying those people so much money to come in and your rent is high. Cause it's, it's right in Times Square. And if you don't own the building, I mean, everyone's told me that like in New York, if you don't own your building, your, your business is on borrowed time. Now here's, here's a quick question. I know, I know that Aaron's been on a ton of times, but I, I'm just kind of curious. I want to have like moderators privilege. Aaron, when did you get into stand up? Like, did you go the stand-up route and now you're writing or were you writing in stand-up and then you just kind of, you're leaning towards writing for shows now? Oh no, stand-up and then writing. So 20, 20 years. Yeah. I just, I find you all so fascinating. You know why? And I say this to Diallo Riddle all the time, who um, is a creator of Southside and Sherman Showcase. But you know, I was a classics minor in college, political science and then classics. And in every society, in like, you know, burgeoning societies, there's sort of certain occupations that are like mandatory for like a civilization to be considered a civilization. So it's like lawyers, doctors, teachers, professors, such as myself, and comedians. Like those are the four occupations that essentially, if you have those four, you have a a functioning society. And so it's like, you all to me are like the canaries in the mine, you're like the interpreters, like you're the people that like translate reality for like the masses. You like explain it. I mean, I'm like fascinated by like the brilliance of comedians. And then since Marina's introduced me to all these like black female comedians and how you guys all have like a different viewpoint of the world. And as a black woman, I'm like, ooh, yes, I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Like it's, it's, I don't know. It's just such a treat. I love it. I appreciate you guys. Now, may I ask a question, Marina? I know. <laughs> Can I? Ask yeah, you? no. 
Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. because I was reading this book, uh, James Baldwin quote the other day, and I had to recently speak to a group of college students, and their teacher was talking about comedy and stuff like that. So they brought me in, and the students asked, "Is it, you know, is it the artist or comedian's responsibility to like talk about the world, make commentary on what's happening, like, or can you just be funny, right? Can you just be saying funny things about, you know, anything?" And I have my take on that and I'll give it afterwards. But I just, for you, do you feel a responsibility to like speak on the way of the world? I know that's kind of what it is, but I mean, do you? Me? You, you, you specifically. Oh, Marina? Oh, okay. Yes. I mean, I, I, I tear my, I get torn between because sometimes it feels like too much pressure, you know, like I do, I can't help myself because that's just in my nature to talk about the world and what's going on. And my heart is in my act. I can't help it. And, but I don't, uh, directly address it. Like I'm more, uh, um, subtle about it. So I'll talk about a story and trip upon what is in the zeitgeist or zeitgeist or whatever that is. <laughs> I, I say things wrong. Close but like, because I'm not an expert. So I, I'm, I, I, and here's the other reason is I hate preachers. Um, I hate preaching. So I try not to preach because uh, of the, so many men in comedy, they are, you could tell that they are preachers by nature and that they are Pied Pipers. And so they, talk with this authority that I cannot stand. Um, so for me, I do feel like somewhat like I, I think I did that joke on my special about how I wish I could talk about what white comics talk. Like I followed a white guy who was talking about horses. Like I'll follow a white male comedian, let's say, and he, all of the random materials just killing. And, I, and there's a jealousy that I feel when I'm watching it. And I'm like, look at that, the ability to just go with that random material that has no like moral value or any like into the world. And he's just killing and he's comfortable doing it. And I and I go on stage and I don't I feel guilty if that's what it is, if that's all that it is. No, I get that, that answer. Yeah. No, it answers because yeah. I often have the envy of and I think with men comics, I also think, though, that a lot of them preach because they're not listeners. Like they, they have, they get to make a people a room for the people to listen to them, and they can't talk back. Like that's that's their dream. But that's all of our dreams, right? So I will just you know. But for me, you know, I was telling these students that I often, you know, sometimes I want to say things that are more. Like I have, I feel like I have opinions in my life that don't make their way into my comedy because. It's not my gift, meaning like if I can find a way to integrate my life into because, you know, to to what's happening. Yes. But I'm not going to just get up there and say what I don't like this. And this is why, because that's not funny to me. And that's not the way my brain works. But then I look at other comics um, who are so great at that, you know, and I'm like, I get envious of it. I'm like, man, I wish I could be saying something more profound. But I'm just saying like Dick Gregory was. Right. I'm not, Dick right. Gregory was an activist and he was so great at it. Um, and that was his passion. And that's, you know, so comedy has its genres and you 
do have a choice of which you want to do. You want to be silly up there. You want to be an activist as a comedian. You want to, you know, whatever you, it's about what you find funny, basically. So, so yeah. So Christina, I would say not all of us are the, are good at being truth tellers. Like, you know, we're, Aaron is very good. I'm, you know, I'm good, but there are some out here who aren't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but the, yeah. you know, there are some comedians where it's like, you just make me laugh. You don't necessarily make me think. Yes. But, you know, like sometimes you just need to just just let out steam, you know, in the form of laughter. And that's the beauty. So, and that's why I think, you know, meeting all these different comedians and sort of seeing how each of you kind of interprets the world. Some of it's like, yeah, I want to kind of have you all think about some things and like see the world in like a slightly different lens, which is enjoyable. And then other times it's like, no, it's just going to be laughs on laughs. But I do think even in the mundane, you know, like, I don't know, like, even if Cat Williams is talking about like a silk pillowcase or a satin pillowcase, it's like, we're cracking up laughing. But it's also this commentary about like black women and hair, which is like what we were talking about before we hit record, you know? So it's like, you're still tapping into something where it's like, oh, so you see us, you know, in a way that isn't necessarily articulated by another comedian who hasn't mentioned satin pillowcases or whatever it may be. So I just- Which is always better, by the way, when you- intentionally go at a subject matter that you think is going to sort of resonate in a, in a viral way or, uh, you know, it's, it's somewhat contrived, but if you have a very personal story for me, anyway, if you have a very personal story that you can tell that really speaks to your heart and your soul or whatever, and that really makes you laugh, you just trip into something. Like I said, that's in the zeitgeist. Go, you know, that people are like, that's what I'm feeling. And then it becomes like, and so what was happening though in the the age of social media was everyone had opinions about your own story. In some way you were telling a story and then people would go, I'm offended by that because of this. And you're like, I'm just telling my story and I didn't know you were going through all that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just... I'm just up here. You know, no one does that for like a play. I can't no tell you all like, a different joke, like an individual joke for each one of you tailored to your life. Sorry. Oh, my God. You know, like the comments section on jokes is endless for every single comedian. I mean, there is no one who is protected from the I'm offended or triggered by. And that's where it became like, what are we doing? You know, so then you start to go, okay. Like, I just have to stick to what I do, tell my story as I see it, share my truth, you know, of how it is and that it's funny and focus on the funny and and let it be what it is, you know? Well, I think some people just are uncomfortable with the fact that, like, if a joke isn't curtailed explicitly to them and they're used to life being curtailed explicitly to them, then it's like, well, wait a minute, I didn't get it. So, like, retell it so I get it. It's like, no, it's okay. Here's the thing. That's why it's tricky, like, Commenting on a comedian's jokes as a comedian gets tricky because you can eventually be the person who is also saying something offensive and then you you look like you're standing in this glass house or whatever. Did I say that right? Yeah, like, so like, for example, like Gerard Carmichael, like what, whereas I have a lot of opinions about Dave Chappelle, but I love Dave Chappelle, but I have a lot of opinions. I might not go fully into it in like a conversation because I'm so afraid that at some point I'm going to be ripped to shreds and be like, remember what you said about Dave Chappelle? 
And so you look at Gerard Carmichael at the Golden Globes, and he was very critical of Dave Chappelle as understandably he's a gay man. But um, now he's being attacked for his comments about Whitney Houston. And so it's like none of us are perfect at this. So like comedians, while I, I don't subscribe to the I'm a comedian, I defend all comedians. I do subscribe to like I'm very careful about attacking a comedian for saying the wrong thing, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I feel that way because it's like I've been on television and like I've, you know, misstated something or it's been interpreted by some people where it's like, ah, I'm offended. So it's like, I get it. You know, when people are just like, I didn't like what you said. I'm like, well, you know what? You be on live television talking about politics and, you know, and say everything perfectly. Like, have at it. Until they ask you to be <laughs> to be on center stage, like, then give, I think what I've, what I've been working on these past few years is that I'm trying to extend grace to other people, like a little more grace, but it it starts with extending more grace to myself. So it's like the more grace I extend to myself, where it's like, listen, Chrissy, hey, you tried your best. It's Martin Luther King Day today. You know what? I'm in my pajamas and I ate a plate of bacon. That's what he would have wanted me to do today. Like, <laughs> I'm extending grace to myself. I'm not outside, you know, picking up trash and like, you know, cleaning beaches. Like, guess what? I'm fighting white supremacy today by resting. That's what he would want me to do. So I'm extending grace to myself. And like, that's what Audre Lorde said. It's a radical act. It's literally a radical act to rest. So that's what I'm doing. TB says eating bacon in bed. Goals. Yeah. (laughs) Amish bacon at that. It is Martin Luther King Day. Yes. Think about Joe Biden, just like it just to me, I can't even watch the coverage of this documents thing because it's like, that's unexcusable. How could you do that? And then now look at his life. It's like, ah, everything be coming back, yo. Everything comes back. Yeah, it it does. It always comes back. That's why it's like, what I don't know. I'm not I'm I'm horrible at quoting for the Bible, so I'm not gonna do it. Be judge unless be judge. I don't know, something like that. Yeah, something, something. (laughs) Judge One would think that uh, after all my years of Catholic school, I would have paid attention to something, but the vibe, the essence is there, Marina. Yes. <laughs> Let's not be judged or something. Um, it is Martin Luther King Day. Let's hop into these topics. The kind of revolution that Martin Luther King Jr. envisioned four days before his death. Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his last Sunday sermon entitled Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. In it, he uses the concept of what is now known as woke in his inherent definition rather than as an idea used by the political right to condemn left-leaning policies. And politicians often use his legacy to promote their own political agendas and often contend that he was colorblind when, in fact, he was an unbashedly color conscious. King often focused on also the financial impact of white supremacy and the need for reparations for the exploitation of black labor. He also emphasized how racism created generational wealth for white Americans while simultaneously robbing black Americans of that luxury. So this is something that's been on my mind lately, obviously, with the uh, California situation where the family selling back or getting the money as opposed to keeping the land. I don't know. Christina, did you follow that? Yeah, I did. And um, the conversation of reparations for me is really complicated. I hate that word. But, you know, I just feel like giving people financial restitution 
is great. But not changing any of the institutions will not actually change the circumstance. So you're going to, let's just say it's a financial payment, right? With the same tax structure, you're not changing any of the racist institutions in which we reside. Education, housing, transportation, environment, the list goes on and on. And so then my fear is that it just gives white folks like, listen, we paid you Negroes and now you have no right to complain. And then it's like, and see, look, we gave them money and like they still can't, you know, like change things. And it's like, because you all haven't changed. It's not really about us. Yes, we do deserve some financial recompense. Every other group has gotten financial recompense for things that have happened, uh, especially on this land. But like none of our structures are willing to change. So I, I, I think that there needs to be a real deep investment in the institutions that we reside. But that looks too much like equity. So, you know, to actually change the educational system, to actually provide substantive transportation or housing, you know, um, I live in New York, you know, um, Aaron, you're out in California, you know, Marina and I hear it all the time in New York about housing, like, you know, homelessness in LA is egregious. Um, And so we're affected by so many things. It's like, we keep throwing money at training police officers, yet and still, they can't seem to not kill us walking down the street, right? Three of the four officers who helped, assisted in the death of George Floyd had been through the advanced training, equity training. Like, so it's like, well, clearly the training didn't resonate because they sat around while a man died in broad daylight. So I think that's my concern. And we have to recognize that every single policy that has ever been made in this country, you know, we call it race-based policies, but every single policy has been made based on racism, not just race. So like where black people live is based on racism. Where housing projects are is based on racism. Transportation or lack thereof based on racism. Like the fact that like, you know, when stupid Donald Trump Jr. was like, oh, what, you're saying the air is racist? It's like, yeah, it is because our communities have fewer trees because you all don't plant trees in our communities. So like, yes, the air can be racist. And like, yes, we do have greater rates of asthma because you put a highway through our community. So like all of these historic, modern day historic, I'm not talking about 1619. I'm not even talking about 1865. I'm talking about Reconstruction and Jim Crow when white folks were so mad that they had to like share resources with black people, we see these racist structures. Like the rise of private pools is because when, you know, we desegregated public pools, white people were like, I don't want to share a pool with Negroes. So like, I'm just going to buy my own pool so I don't have to be with white people. But just last week, we saw white people say black people couldn't be in a public pool because it's like, it's my, it's my property. It's like, no, it's a public pool. What do you mean I can't be here? So on the one hand, yes. (laughs) To answer your question in a very long-winded way, we do need to be compensated for the racist practices that have been and continue to permeate all aspects of life. But on the other hand, I, I still don't know how to best do it. And I think that it has to start not necessarily from an individual financial payout just yet. I think it needs to start with changing these institutional structures first. So then our financial payment can actually work within structures that are meant to work for us. But in this tax code, it's like, what we're going to do is pay off student loans. We're going to, you know, try and find better housing. We might try and, you know, buy a car so we can actually like get to work since we don't have transportation in our neighborhoods. Like all that money isn't going to go into like investing in like 
businesses per se that like won't be supported by whites. I mean, like all the data shows us, it's like black people support their own businesses and everybody else's white people support their businesses. But like, you know, besides like the summer of reckoning in 2000 and our quickie, we get Juneteenth, which nobody asked for. And like some white people, you know, went to a black bookstore for the first time for like 20 minutes and then never (laughs) returned again. So it's like other people don't support our institutions in the same way that we support theirs. And that's a mindset. That's what King talked about. It's like, you know, we're asking people to like fundamentally change behaviors and educate themselves. I, we are educated. We know what race and racism looks like in this country. So like, you don't have to tell me anything. I've been a black person in this country my whole life. It's, you know, my podcast, when we talk about like black history is American history, it's like the fact that we know so much about like the great black people in this country. And then we can like talk to a white person who went to the same schools, if not better. And they're like, I've never heard of Shirley Chisholm. It's like, what? <laughs> like, you should be mad. You should be mad about your educational system. But we have to know everything about you in order to build head in the world, right? Just in the society, right? They don't even know their people. White people don't even know Tina Marie. You know what I'm saying? It's y'all. Paula Oates, those are your people, right? Claim. So, I mean, but the thing is, it's like, so, I mean, in conclusion, I will say to Aaron's point, it's like, in order for us to not just thrive, but just at the bare minimum survive, we have to know white people and ourselves, right? And so like white people, you can be a millionaire in this country as a white person and never speak to a single person of color. It is very difficult for you to be a black millionaire in this country and like not talk to any white people. Like you have to interact in their structures, in their institutions. So it's like they can exist in like a Friends, Seinfeld, Sex in the City world, Without us, we don't exist at all. And it's very difficult for us to survive and thrive in this country if we just decide, I'm not going to talk to any white people. It's not impossible, but it's, it's incredibly difficult. That's why I, I, I always pitch HBCUs because people will tell you, oh, it's not the real world. That's not, I'm like, it was fine. I liked it. That's what my dad it. said, yeah. You know what I mean? It's nice to not be in the real world for four years. I was in D.C. I was in a black city on a black campus. You know what I'm saying? Like the squirrels were black and it was black people teaching me how to behead. They were. They were. They are. Um, and, and it was black people, people of color teaching me how to succeed in the, the broader world. Who better to tell you? as a black person, how to get ahead in America than black people who have succeeded in America. They're going to tell you the pitfalls. They're going to tell you, you know what I mean? It's like, Ooh, I got, that's like, it's, it's like insider trading for like life, you know? And HP, it was, it was lovely. I remember when I used to, when I got my first internships, I had like forgotten about white people a little bit. And I was like, Oh yeah. Like I had to leave campus. I had to leave DC. Um, it was a nice little cocoon because it's all you're going to ever get. It's the only time. So I enjoyed it. And there's diversity. And I'm so jealous of it. Yeah, there's diversity. And then I'm from, from oh no, I, I talk all the time. So I try to cut myself off. But um, I, I went to University of Illinois for that. What my dad used to say, you got to be in the real world. You can't go to a black college. None, none of my kids are going to a black college. But I'm so envious of everyone who's gone to an HBCU because I can see those connections that are still there and that world that is like, you know, I, I never had that. It's crazy because at U of I, the closest I got to it is they segregated us anyway because they put me on a floor with all black students. 
So that was the, like for the first time for me, actually, because I grew up in a white neighborhood. And then, you know, that was the first time I actually had that. And I was like, this is great. I remember thinking, this is wonderful. I've never had this ability to just be like, and then my friend, um, my Puerto Rican friend tried to call me out on Soul Food Night. She was like, Marina trying to talk black and she don't talk like that. I was so annoyed. I was like, look, this is this is great. I'm loving this. Don't take it away from me. <laughs> Are your friends from college? Do you keep in touch with your friends from college? Very few. Like my uh, my friend Isis and yeah, my my roommate, Stephanie, but she also went to high school with me. So some of them, yeah, but not like the HBCU. Like I see your connections and the network and I'm so jealous of it. It's like, oh God. Even when you do comedy shows, I'm like, I want to be there. I want to say I went to. My nieces are going to go to. They're, uh, my nieces want to go to Spelman. I think one wants to go to Howard. Um, so, yeah. they. I see that um, in one of these articles, speaking of structural, which you were talking about, Christina, which is so important. Because like, well, I have a couple of things I wanted to say. In Harlem right now, you can really see that going on um, as far as structurally the racism because the population has decreased. It's like under, I mean, we're just not, this used to be a black, Harlem used to be black. And now it's like under 40% black community. I mean, really, um, black people have been kicked out of Harlem on purpose because there's, it's still the last real estate for a lot of these big corporations and they realize it. And so what you said, like uh, we have a Senator Chris, Kristen jo- uh, Jordan. Gillibrand. Uh, no, I'm, th- I'm thinking of uh, for Harlem. Her name is Kristen. Oh, you're a city for- council member? Yes. Um, so she's been fighting this big corporation, 145th Street, that wants to say they have affordable housing but, you know, when you look at the print, which, you know, which I think is now happening more than ever, is we're all very attuned on what they're doing in the in the little print. So, like, they say it's affordable housing, but no one in Harlem that is of color can afford that affordable housing that they're claiming that is in that structure. So that's affordable housing, really, in that structure will displace more black individuals living in Harlem. And so when we talk about like structural racism, that's it right there. Um, you don't see this happening on 96th Street or below in on Madison. You don't see their communities being diversified. You know, they're not talking <laughs> about, they're not talking about injection sites on Madison Avenue. And there was a woman who was speaking about this site on 145th Street, this uh, very wealthy building that they want to put up or high rise or real estate property. And the woman was saying, um, you know, black people, we're always open. We're always letting other people in. We're always open to other people. But, you know, no one does that for us ever. So it's about time. Um, Well, I think, you know, it's the indexes that they use to calculate affordable housing, which are completely skewed and they always, you know, damage black people. I mean, this is where my utter disdain for Jay-Z comes in. Like my white hot disdain for this man. Like when I see him, it's on site. Like I'm pulling off that wig. I mean, I'm just, we're fighting. And it's because, you know, he allowed himself to be, yes, I said wig, 
<laughs> he allowed himself to be the face of Barclays with his 0.1% ownership. And he went to his own Black people in Brooklyn and was like, oh, there'll be affordable housing and jobs and this, that, and, and the other. And we see that massive monstrosity that is, you know, Barclays in the center of Brooklyn and their affordable housing is a $3,000 studio. That's not affordable housing. So like Black folks get kicked out upon his promise that affordable housing would come and it never did. And it's like, so it's in this like one building on the side of Barclays that is buku expensive and like all that property that was destroyed, it's like Black folks can't return back to their own neighborhoods. And so like, even when Aaron said, you know, you went to school in DC, Chocolate City. And I was like, well, when you went there, it was Chocolate City. And and now it's like, <laughs> I just, I sold my place a couple of years ago. It's crazy. It's crazy. And then I just read, you know, there's a great article in The Atlantic about silence and quiet. And it's sort of basically gentrifiers like to move into communities, but then they want to totally change the community, right? So it's like, I moved to Bourbon Street in New Orleans. You all need to pipe down at 10 p.m. And it's like, why would you move to New Orleans and Bourbon Street if you don't like noise? It's like, so in Harlem, complaints, complaints, all over D.C., it's like, you all make too much noise. So it's like, so you want to be with us for our reasonable property values that you're going to jack up. And then you, we're supposed to tiptoe around in our sock feet just because you want quiet at 10 o'clock. So then we can all get kicked out and then you can start making noise. Like, you know, what's funny, Christina, the owner of the Comedy Cellar has sent that article to me twice calling me a black Karen because I'm always complaining about noise. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I'm like, it's... Aren't you complaining about white folks? I feel like you're complaining about I'm white complaining folks. I'm complaining about white folks. So I feel like... <laughs> yeah, that's the... Yeah, it's totally different. I'm like, listen, I'm not... I mean, it's, it's, there are black folks attending the white establishment, but what, I, what I'm also noticing is this is a white establishment that has three properties that they own, businesses that they own in a black neighborhood. And so I am just shining a light on the fact that we give them all this property on a black neighborhood and we're not holding them accountable for who they're hiring. What what are they really doing in the community? Are they really invested in the community? Are making Are making money off of the community or creating white spaces for white people in the community, which is my point. So noise was my way in to discovering all of this that they were doing. And um, so he doesn't understand that, of course. So he sends me this article calling me a black parent. <laughs> I mean, listen, I don't like shenanigans and mayhem as much as the next person when I'm trying to sleep. But I'm also, I recognize I'm not going to call the cops on black people. Like, you know, one of my mentees went viral uh, year, a few years ago and his stuff ended up in the Washington Post because his neighbor's white neighbor moved into his building and essentially told my mentee, like, you know, you need to keep it down. And if you don't, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to have them come and like make you turn it down. And so my, my former student was like, that's a death threat. I mean, like for a white person to tell a black man, I'm going to call the police so they can come and deal with you, like... And we know what happens when police interact with young black men far too often. And so he wrote him this like very, you know, pointed letter that ended up getting picked up, you know, online and then by the media. But it's it's so frustrating because it's like, well, where are we supposed to be? Because you you price us out of your neighborhoods. We have our own communities that we make into these thriving spaces, despite the fact that we're under-resourced and ignored even if we do have 
you know, electeds of color. And that's a whole nother podcast episode. But then with hyper gentrification of cities across the country in tier one and tier two cities, right? We see even, you know, I'm, I'm giving a shout out to uh, our guest who's, who's on the podcast TV today. It's like even in Portland, like the historic black community in Portland, almost, you know, like folks are like, we want it now. And so like black folks are like struggling to hang on to the historic parts of Portland, Oregon. So it's like, so then what are we supposed to do? Because the, the, the guy who ran for governor in 2010, rent's too damn high. Like everyone chuckled, but it's like, he was onto something. I mean, like people can't stay in a lot of cities because they're being priced out due to gentrification. And it's like the communities are just also not even safe for them to be there. They're, they're so unwelcoming, even in coffee shops that like are brand new. And it's like, I've been living in this community for 30 years. And all of a sudden now you're asking me, like, can I help you? It's like, I live here. Like, can I help you? You're the newcomer. Like these, these folks aren't like respecting the fact that like they're new to the neighborhood, yet they're treating the, the old heads as though they don't belong. And essentially you think about it, it's like they, those people moved because they couldn't afford it, right? So they moved into where we are. So nobody can afford it. They just have more money than you do, but they got priced out. So they have to go down to a neighborhood that's not down, but you know what I mean? They have to move to a place that's more affordable, which means you can't stay there. So you got to move to a place. That, it's affecting us all. You know what I mean? And it, and it's, but, but, but the thing about like, even like the, the people up in Washington Heights, like you say, people moving into New Orleans and being like, Hey, keep it down. It's like, how effing dare you? You are a refugee too. So stop it. You know? Um, anyway. But you know what I think is also really interesting? Um, so I saw Raisin in the Sun when it was staged. You know, I see a lot of theater. I saw it in October when it was staged at the public. But there's a play that I saw years ago called Clyburn Park, which is kind of a response to Raisin in the Sun. It's essentially about a, a family 50 years later in Chicago, and these white gentrifiers are moving into their neighborhood, and they're sort of pressuring this Black family to sell, right? Because now all the white people want this neighborhood. So it's like, you know, in the Raisin in the Sun, the Black family moves out of the quote-unquote ghetto into you know, a part of Chicago where all the whites live. This play, Clyburn Park, is a response to that. So it's like, in the span of 50 years, that white neighborhood has now become all black because white folks started moving out when black folks moved in. And now white folks want it again. And so it's interesting, just like you said, Erin, even in Brooklyn, when we're like, ah, you know, it's being gentrified. It's like, well, actually, my neighborhood used to be white, but then everybody fled like 70 years ago and now they want it again. So, I mean, it's just, it is cyclical and maybe it, Maybe our focus is on the wrong people, right? I mean, yes, I do get annoyed by gentrifiers, but I do recognize that I'm a Black gentrifier in, in a lot of contexts. But we're also not as angry at the institutional and systemic structures that are creating unaffordable housing for so many people on so many levels. Because like living in LA, living in New York, you know, you can make like over $200,000 and be like living paycheck to paycheck because you're trying to like, live in a particular neighborhood that's not even, you know, Beverly Hills or Park Avenue. It's just the rent is high or the, you know, whatever you're paying every month. It's like making it such that like you're check to check. I'm living in both places currently. I'm paying rent in both Girl. places. You know why? Because you are a baller. No, I am not. <laughs> I'm definitely not. But that's it. I'm, eating. Like, like, no. I'm eating beans on toast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, drink, I'm drinking Gatorade for lunch and breakfast. <laughs> Can I just say really quickly, though, um, 
because Marina always has these amazing guests on her show that I'm introduced to. Erin, I don't watch a lot of TV. I watch the same shows over and again, over and over again, like I'm four years old. But I did actually watch the Upshaws, and I know that you write for them. I loved that show. I thought that you guys handled a lot of topics really well, like sort of having a gay son without making it like a whole bunch of like homophobic gay jokes, having like a sister-in-law that's like, Gets along with the husband, but not really. But like, there's some beef that she has from like back in the day. And it's like kind of justified. But also like the tension between Kim Fields and, um, like you in his name. Mike Epps. Mike Epps. Thank you. I was about to say Omar Epps. I'm like, it's not Omar Epps. But between Kim Fields and Mike Epps, you know, because she kind of wants to do a little more with her career. And like, you know, he's a, a small business owner and we get it. But like the money tensions and how like money can be just such a source of like a lot for relationships. I just thought it was like so realistic, but also funny, but really touching. And even if that's not your circumstance, you could still see yourself or, or people, you know, in a lot of the characters and the conversations they were having, especially with like blended families. You know, it's like, listen, a lot of people aren't marrying someone for the first time where it's like, the two of us are going to have kids. It's like, you might have a kid from a previous relationship. And like, that's really complicated to have a kid and also that kid's parent. So I just, uh, I think it's done really, really well. Like, yeah. I'm in love with it. I'm in love with it. We, um, thank you so much. We have, we have season two, part two coming next month and we're writing season three now. So there's more to come. But um, I love it because it's very much when Mike pitched the show to to Wanda, it was very much like, I'm from Indiana. Can we do Black Roseanne and make it us, though? And essentially, it's what it is, right? Like a working class Black family in the Midwest. We have, you know, we have businesses, but we ain't flush all the time. And, you know, but I and I and I so I love the show for for what it is. I'm, I'm really happy to be writing for it. Thank you. Even the African immigrant who also is like part of the crew. So he like gets all the jokes, but not gets all the jokes. And I've, I, I find like I'm a black sitcom connoisseur in the sense that like someone who studies and teaches urban politics. I'm fascinated by the cities in which black sitcoms are situated because it's not accidental. Right. So it's like The Rock is in Baltimore. 227 was D.C. Amen was Philly. You know, Good Times was Chicago. Your Girlfriends is L.A. You know, The Jeffersons was Queens and then the East Side. Right. Because the spinoff of All in the Family. So like the fact and, you know, Martin was in Detroit. So the fact that this is in Indiana is not lost on me either, because I'm like, well, there's a reason why it's not taking place in D.C. or you know, Sanford and Sons, L.A., you know, Watts, right, from back in the day. So it's like, well, choosing a, a urban center where Black people are is a really important distinction to make for a show. So, like, I really, as you said, like, money's a little different in Indiana than it would be, like, if this took place in Brooklyn as a TV show. And, like, Living Singles Brooklyn, not Manhattan. Like, Cosby Show's Brooklyn. You know, so, like, all this stuff... um, even though the Cosby show at the time, like that Brooklyn wasn't the Brooklyn <laughs> that they portrayed it to be. So I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, they fast forwarded to 2020 Brooklyn. They sure did. They sure did. And Michael Che had a joke about like, like white women coming and colonizing Brooklyn. He was like, do you know how gangster that is? He's like, do you know how hard Brooklyn was? And I was like, oh my God, I've never looked at Brooklyn or white women the same again. <laughs> 
So yeah, but just congratulations. I'm very, yes. very excited for this this next season. And I, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on TV and black sitcoms. And I was just like, that scene, and you know, I was in like a group chat with some black girlfriends of mine. I don't want to have any spoilers, but there's a fight that, um, Marina, have you seen the show? Mm-hmm. When Kim Fields and Mike Epps get into a, a fight about him using some money for something where she needed the money for something else. And I was like, Kim Fields, you were acting your ass off. First of all, Tootie, like, I was like, but the way she looked at him in like this seething anger, but also hurt, I was like, we were just cracking up like three minutes ago, genuinely cracking up on some like black family stuff. But I was like, this is probably a conversation that like a lot of families have had. And it just felt really visceral. And I was like, I'm just what I, I literally was like, this writer's room knows black people. Like it is like, this is the type of show you get when you get like real people in a writer's room that aren't like writing for who they think black people are and like how they think black people talk. I mean, I literally just left a play during intermission because I was like, oh, this is a white playwright who is writing black and Latino characters. I mean, literally like I ain't got no money. I was like, I'm out. <laughs> I was like, I'm done. I'm done. This is Broadway. And I don't care that I spent a lot of money to be here. I will not be insulted. I'm out. Yeah. Congratulations, Erin. You know, plus I'm just like so happy to see you happy. Like in, uh, I've watched Erin for years get just struggle to get into a place of consistency with this industry. And so to see Aaron in this place, you know, I always want to hug you, but I'm I always in my head, I go, don't do it. <laughs> but it makes me so happy to see you happy, yeah. relatively happy, right? In this space. So, yeah, it's a good thing. It's beautiful. Um, I do want to um, talk about, since we have you, Christina, this this guy... You know, because, I, you know, here's the thing, DeSant- uh, George Santos, yeah. right? So here's the thing. When we talk about reparations, right, and we talk about structural racism, and we see what Santos is doing, and we see what he's a part of, and they always like to talk about black crime. Well, white crime seems to be so um, quiet and hush-hush, and the victims of white crime, which, you know, we are all the time, we don't get, that's a form, that should be reparations, by the way. Because when I, because I'm studying stocks right now and I'm, I'm still new at it, but I act like I'm a professional and I'm not. I know. I was telling everyone to invest in corn. I'm an idiot. But <laughs> I love you so much. You have no idea. You have no idea. Okay. Because I just. No idea. I take on a subject and then I'm like, I know what you should do. And I'm still new well, at it. Hold on. Were you a big cryptocurrency person? No, no, no. So my uncle teaches a stock class um, with us and like Zainab was there last week or yesterday. Alvin's, you know, you're welcome, all welcome to come. But he's in California and he, you know, he wanted to show us how to do safe investments. Nothing crazy. So crypto, I wouldn't even get into because it's not regulated. And also because now I understand how much crime there is in non-regulated stuff. You could lose a lot of money. You can get, you if you're greedy, you can make, I know people have made a lot of money off of crypto, a lot, but I know that that's where greed sets in, right? So that's where you end up losing. So now 
now I understand the Bernie Madoff thing like I never did before. I'm watching the documentaries. I'm watching the MSNBC stories. And I'm like, I saw this part of the story where they go, and it, it was at 86%. Now it's at 96% of those victims. Those were mostly white victims, by the way. I'm sure there were some people of color in there too. They got their money back. I don't ever hear them talk about that. You always hear about the crime. You don't hear about how these victims got their money back. That's a form of reparation, right? So the government had no problem whatsoever in investigating and getting these people's, I mean, they went, I mean, they were talking billions of dollars returned to what is mostly white, wealthy victims. There wasn't an argument for it. There wasn't any problem with getting these people their money back. But when we're talking about structural racism and institutions and college and affordable housing, there's so much argument. So I was like, for the first time, I'm seeing it and I'm like, I don't think they understand this. And I, I we had a YouTube live this Saturday and I had a, a white friend on and he was like, wait a minute, they got their money back? I'm like, yeah, you didn't know that, did you? There's a reason why you don't know that. That's on purpose, by the way. So um, when we talk about George Santos, I don't know, I get so heated about this shit. Um, he was a part of these scams. He was a part of like running a Ponzi scheme. The, so George Santos, previously known as George DeVolder, is the 34-year-old Republican New York congressman who lied to voters about his biography. But more importantly... The investment firm he previously worked at, Harbor City Capital, is no longer in operation, having its assets frozen in 2021 when the SEC accused them of running a Ponzi scheme and defrauding millions of dollars from investors. And he remained at this firm after being made aware of its fraudulent bank activities. So this is an article that the Post, they did their investigation and they're just putting this out here. And, you know, I look in the comment sections and it's here's reminds me of how much the right will pay to support criminals. So, Christina, what what is the conversation going on in in your arena? So there are a few things. Um, With someone like George Santos, he's in office now. I mean, like all the people who should have served as a stopgap, they all failed, like. The Democrats failed. The Republican Party failed. You know, this isn't his first time running. He ran two years ago. So, like, all these lies, literally an intern could have found out, were just baseless. He never went to, starting with, you never went to Horace Mann. You didn't go to Baruch. You didn't go to Baruch on, you know, and were a member of the winning volleyball team, which he said he was. Um, you didn't work for Goldman Sachs. You didn't work for Citibank. Your mother didn't die in 9-11. You didn't lose... Uh, colleagues in the Pulse nightclub shooting. I mean, this man is trying to essentially be like Forrest Gump, like any world event. He's like everything. And it to the point where it's like, this is now pathological. Like you're not even using your own name when you're sort of doing some of your Republican, he was talking about LGBTQ plus stuff at some Republican fundraiser. He gave a totally separate name. Now he's not only being investigated for local crimes, for state crimes, for federal crimes, and international crimes because he was writing bad checks in Brazil. The only reason why they didn't prosecute him is because they couldn't find him because he was under a different name. So, like, this man is not just, like, you know, I know he's been the butt of a lot of jokes. 
But when you think about, he's very dangerous. He's clearly not mentally stable. But you have to ask yourself, how is it that a man who kept getting evicted, who has a string of former roommates and former lovers who were like, this man left me holding the bag. He stole my clothes. Like he stole money. He owes me this, that, and the third. And then somehow you've got $5 million for your campaign. You can personally loan your campaign 700,000 plus dollars. It's like, where's this money coming from? And that's the crux of the question. All these other lies are really problematic and should and must be investigated. But it's like, no, no, no. Now we're talking real money because I'm not going to make assumptions, but I know that I don't have access to $5 million real quick. When just last three, I mean, six months ago. $30,000. When he, they were saying his salary had been like $30,000, $40,000. 30000 Yeah. Like, it, I think it was like one one year is thirty thousand, then one year maybe fifty five. But like, how are we going from thirty thousand to five million? Okay, we're not. And how are we going from being evicted multiple times? And people are like, he was nice, but I had to evict him because like he didn't pay your rent for six months, and so that's the relationship. And then all of a sudden, you can loan yourself seven hundred thousand dollars. Like it doesn't make sense. But we have someone like Kevin McCarthy, who's the majority leader in the House, who's there by such a slim margin. And for those of you are the listeners who were watching the shenanigans play out. We went to 15 rounds of voting, which we hadn't done uh, for well over a century. Um, You know, Kevin McCarthy knows that he needs every single vote. So he's like, hey, I'm not trying to kick this guy out. Like, no, you know, like, let him stay. Because George Santos knows Kevin McCarthy just needs his yes vote. So like, that's their tacit agreement. And so this man is clearly part of, I don't know if you call it a Ponzi scheme. I don't know what kinds of schemes he's in. But it's not savory. And we know good well that if you look like anybody on this screen, this man would have been vetted on vetted. And we don't get to have, you know, $5 million question marks around us. You know, we don't get to have the same types of mistakes as a George Santos. Um, But we know the Republican Party is just so excited to have, you know, they're like, he's gay and Latino. Like, boom. Like, that means we're not racist or homophobic. So, like, we can still make these horrible policies that are racist and homophobic. But we have a guy who's going to say that they're not. So, sure, we're into it. Hey, Walker, same thing. Made up, but okay. That man is a, I think he, we're looking also at someone who clearly has some cognitive brain damage. And now that he's lost, by a very narrow margin, might I add, right? After a runoff, and he's running against someone who is very brilliant in his own right, yet in, somehow it was a, a competitive race. And I think, you know, Georgia needs to sort of think about how they run their races statewide. That's a different conversation. But, you know, it's an embarrassment how the Republican Party just looks at um, people of color and it's like, oh, well, it's black people. Let's just run a Negro. I mean, Marina, you might remember this when when Barack Obama was running for Senate. And the first time U.S. Senate, well, he only ran one time because he was in the Senate for 20 minutes. But when he was running... And his opponent, whose name I'm blanking on, I can see it's um, Jay, his name starts with a J. Um, he had to drop out because he had some domestic violence uh, accusations surrounding. And so the Republicans were scrambling for a candidate and they're like, let's put up Alan Keyes. He's a Negro. So it's like black on black. So they've done like this is part of their playbook where it's like if we have a credible black candidate and they're like, oh, well, we need somebody. Well, let's just get a black person because like obviously black people just, you know, they're the same. And it's like so. Reverend Warnock is the same as Herschel Walker. And the fact that like so many millions of people went to the polls and voted for Raphael or voted for Herschel Walker over Raphael Warnock or voted for Alan Keyes over Barack Obama at the time, that's slightly different, but you know, you, you get where I'm going. But like, 
you know, it, it's it's a lot of, I think, what the George Santos conversation, besides the money that will need to be investigated, but there's so many Republicans that need to be investigated. It looks like Democrats are always like, you know, screaming at the sky because it's like, well, you guys just keep giving us super corrupt people. So we have to keep investigating. It's like they're on witch hunts. It's like, no, there's something wrong with this man. So much so that even the New York Republicans are like, we got to get him. Stop nominating all these damn witches. Like it just it looks bad for us after a certain point in time. We got it like we got to cut bait and like let this cat go. I mean, he's he's really dangerous. But I think hopefully it'll help Democrats recognize Stop paying all these D.C. consultants to jump in who don't know anything about all politics is local, as Tip O'Neill told us time and time again. So it's like you can't just have somebody who's good at campaigning from Washington, D.C. parachute into a community and be like, oh, let's run this race. Sometimes it works, but you're paying them a ton of money. And so like going back to Aaron's point about like the sitcom takes place in Indiana, like somebody in D.C., actually should not be the person running a campaign in Indiana. You might want to get somebody in Indiana who understands what people in Indiana want. And like, this was a classic case of like Democrats, even though it was a Democratic seat, they were just like, oh, you know, we've got a good candidate. It's like, that's not what it's about. Like, we know Republicans work on voter suppression. We know that they'll lie, cheat and steal. So like, what are you doing? What are you absolutely doing? Because we know that Democrats will be swing voters. Republicans, they don't do that. So I, here's my question to both of you. Um, and Aaron, you can answer this uh, first. Uh, why do people continue to support criminals? Like, I mean, I, that's the focus that I haven't seen in any of these articles about him. Is we're, we're questioning him, but why not? Why? Why do you think? You mean, why did people in New York vote for him? I think because they, first of all, they didn't know, right? I mean, we do, a lot of voters, we, we if they didn't do their research, you think I got to, I'm going to work every day. I got my kids. You can't have time to do opposition research on George Santos. No, I'm relying on the media. Just I'm relying on you to tell me that this person is who they say they are. And you know what I mean? And I'll, and I'll vote for them. And, and, and so I think even people who voted for him feel duped. I mean, we've seen that on the news, you know, they're like, Oh wait, if I have my votes due again, I wouldn't do it. But I think, the bigger answer to that is just tribalism. It's just, I want to win. I want my side to win. Can this guy win? He doesn't have to do much when he gets there because that's how people see it, right? Like, you don't have to do much when you get to Congress. You don't even have to be on any committees. All you have to do is vote the way we want you to vote. And I think that's that's what's happened. It's just like my side versus your side with no concern for what's good for communities or the country, and I mean, being a Democrat, sometimes I wish I don't. I do and I don't wish we played dirtier, but I know, you know I hear you. I get it. I mean, I get it. I was it, thinking that too. I was like, why don't we just just take a page from their book? Just just once, just just to kind of like even this this fight that we're in right now, because it's not fair. It's like, what is that saying? Like Democrats bring a, what, boxing gloves to a gunfight? I don't know. I don't think it's boxing gloves. I get quotes wrong all I always the say time. they bring a typewriter to a knife fight. <laughs> They're like, oh. At least we have more people. I feel like we have a few more people nowadays that will call a thing by its name. For so long, it's like the, the politeness of it all too, when you know you're getting screwed 
And you're just like, well, you know, that's what really irks me. Not even the not playing dirty. It's the, are we going to act like, are we going to just be this civil and this whatever in the face of, you know, what's being done, what's happening and the corruption. And so I think we might've gotten a little bit better at that. We need to find some, some, some strategy people like they got. <laughs> and I remember one time we were on here, Christina, I think the one time I was on here before with you, I, I said something about this and, you know, I, I said, um, you know, why can't Democrats get in line? And then you said, well, we're a bigger tent, right? I remember that being your answer. And I thought about that ever since, like, you know what I mean? There are a lot of people who subscribe to democratic, you know what I mean? Philosophies, but we have all kinds, you know, we're from all kinds of places and we're, you know, so it's harder to get people in line because we have different interests, even though some of the big ones are the same. So I, I get that, but I'm like, I really wish we could get some, some ninjas. We need some ninjas. And, and I think you're right that we are getting, you know, like the squad, they'll, they'll sort of call people out a little bit better, you know, even though they get reprimanded for, it. but I always say like, we've got in, in the New York context, we've got several shades of blue, you know? So it's like, we represent a spectrum and some people don't have a stomach for, for fighting. And I'm like, well, right now we're rearranging the chairs on the Titanic. Like, come on, people. Like, I personally thought that when Donald Trump did not, this is January 6th aside, right, which is a massive aside. But like when Donald Trump did not attend the inauguration of Joe Biden, I was like, we are in serious, dangerous waters. And like, Democrats were like, no, let's just get to work. It's not that big of a deal. He didn't want to come. And I'm like, he didn't come, guys. Like, this is not a peaceful transference of power. He didn't come. Like, everybody comes. The only reason why Jimmy Carter wasn't there is because Jimmy Carter is one million years old and he shouldn't be out in the wintertime. And I get it. He's too busy building houses in Georgia, doing great things for the American people. That's the only reason why he didn't come. There's no beef there. So when, when Donald Trump got uh, inaugurated. So I, I definitely think that, you know, when you watch television... And Republicans have decided, you remember with Donald Trump's lies, they all had to just like follow suit because he would just change his mind. And so like a memo would go out. I don't know how, I don't know what kind of owl pigeon text machine, but like you could watch the six o'clock shows and everybody would say the same exact. It was like they had a chip. If the buzzword to, yeah, it's like if the buzzword was obstinance, everybody said obstinance. If the buzzword was, you know, uh, insecurity or like Joe Biden is incoherent, like Everybody said the same exact thing on every single platform across. So it's like, as you, you know, like people are in lockstep, you can call it a cult, whatever it is, but you've got Republicans voting against their own interests. They don't care. It's like the tribal tribalism for them specifically. It's like, we just need to win. Whereas Democrats are like, well, let's have a little more nuance. Like, um, and we also have to just be real about the fact that like a lot of, you know, white Democrats fancy themselves as being more progressive than they are. We also have to remember that like black folks in general, we don't tend to be far lefties. We, because we have to vote understanding who white people are. Going back to Chrissy and Aaron's earlier point. It's like, we have to know ourselves and them. So it's like, listen, I know what I want. I know the capacity of white people better than white people. So I'm going to- That's why Joe Biden is president. Boom. That's why Bernie Sanders will never be president. Joe Biden is who black folks knew white folks would vote for. So that's who we have to support because together we have to win this presidency. Thank you. Like, and it's like other people in that way. We're the most strategic voters. So it's like there are black people who go to the polls and it's like, I will vote for my second or third choice white person because I know for a fact the capacity of white people will never elect 
a Kamala or a Bernie or an Elizabeth Warren. And you might agree with Elizabeth Warren's policies. A lot of black people don't, but like you might agree with them, but it's like, listen, white folks ain't, white folks ain't going for that. Like, and so with Obama, that was because Obama was such a great order that kind of changed the conversation ever so slightly. But also when you listen to Obama's policies, when you read them on a page, he is not progressive. His skin color is far to the left, but his policies were middle, 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 middle of the spectrum. Like he's a Bill Clinton Jr. So, and I, I mean, you know, that's just reality. People don't want to believe it, but it's like, look at his policies. He's a hawk. So black folks understand the capacity of white people. And that's how we go to the polls because we'd rather get our second or third choice than nothing. Cause Donald Trump is our nothing. And like, yes, you have some Negroes who like need attention and they're like, Donald Trump's the greatest thing ever. It's like, really? Herman Cain? Is he? Because he walked you right off a ledge. Is he diamond and silk? Because he walked you right off a ledge and he doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about anybody. He definitely doesn't care about black people. He thinks we're a bunch of criminals or former criminals, right? And so how black people support Donald Trump is a very aspirational, like, I think he's successful and I want to be successful. They think he's like a gangster. He is, he's the original Bernie Madoff. But he's also, a, but he's like a Queens Ponzi scheme, right? So he's like, he's like, he could never be a part of the country clubs that like the elite Manhattan boys were a part of. None of those institutions. That's why he had to start his own country clubs. Cause they're like, you'll never be a part of our institutions because you're crass and you're gaudy and like you're tactless and classless. Like he knows that about himself. So he he's hawking steaks and water bottles and all types of, you know, um, little gadgets that the masses who see him as aspirational with this third wife of his, where I'm like, oh, wow. So you guys are anti-immigrant, but you're fine that Donald Trump has had two immigrant wives and four out of his five children are the children of immigrants. But you believe in separating children of immigrants from their parents. Like, I mean, like the mental gymnastics that these racist people have to do to support Donald Trump and his like hardcore white evangelicals. But I'm like, but I thought he was thrice divorced and clearly has like supported women with abortions like tons of times. And it's like, yeah, but you know, unlike Obama, he's a real Christian. I'm like, oh, wow. You know, you just brought up something again, bringing up Bernie Madoff, because you can learn so much about racism through that and why we vote for why black people did vote for Trump, actually, because they showed in that news story of Madoff that when he went to jail, it was black convicts. They were applauding him. So, you know, you just it, it, it's all makes sense now because I've, I've 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 been saying, why do black men specifically support like when I hear I've heard them talk about how they think he's cool. And I'm like, oh, like you're aspiring to be this guy who's taking advantage of a system. And you're not understanding that the that who's affected by that is actually you. You're not getting any benefits from that. Um, I do want to talk about Mayor Adams for a second, if that's OK. No. Should no, I not? I'm just checking. But because I, I, you know, it's the question that's been asked several times is, you know, I, I think he has a difficult task of of the budget because there's no money. Right. You know, but I think transparency would help. And he doesn't seem to have it. Um, that's been the problem with the Democratic Party, I think, in New York City. You spoke to that. Can you can because. He's cut money funding from the library and he needs to explain that. Can you, because we've been talking about that, Christina, is why he's taking money from 
the public library and education. Which we know the public library is a resource for so many families and like it prevents a whole bunch of ills that can befall a city. Um, and Marion Barry, former mayor of D.C., fundamentally understood that and, you know, made sure that young people had jobs because he's like, listen, you give, mo- you know, young people a little bit of money in their pocket. They don't like crime goes down. Teenage pregnancy goes down. Like all the bad things go down. I'm not saying the teenage pregnancy. That's why he's so beloved. Yes. I mean, listen, anybody who talks bad about Mary and Barry, like earrings will come off Vaseline on face. I'm ready. Like, I think he's like, seriously, this is why, you know, I think I talked to you about this before, Marina, on this podcast. That's why Chris Rock's joke about Mary and Barry is like so damaging to the legacy of Mary and Barry, because most people have never picked up a book about Mary and Barry. They just know Chris Rock's joke. It's like, oh, Mary and Barry smokes crack. And it's like, that's absolutely like one one millionth of the story. And like, it's a lazy joke that- Give me anybody like, our age from it. DC. And it's like, Mary and Barry gave me my first job. Mary and Barry set me up. Like, I mean, I lived in DC for 15 years and he could do no, I mean, you know, but he could do no wrong because the eyes of young people. And, he, and he made sure white folks didn't take over DC. He was very deliberate about that too. So we're not dealing with Marion Barry in Eric Adams. Um, we have to recognize that the mayor's budget does, it's inextricably linked to state and federal money. So it's not like the, the mayor just has all this money and all his discretion. Uh, the vast majority of his budget is spoken for. So he's got a little bit of wiggle room. And that little bit of wiggle room does tell us what the priorities are. You know, de Blasio, cops were like, we want 500 new cops. De Blasio gave him 1,000. Aren't you the progressive mayor, right? Like, he, his first um, police commissioner was the architect of stop and frisk. Like, de Blasio, what are you doing? So we get Eric Adams and, you know, the libraries. And now this week is about migrants. He's currently at the border, essentially saying, like, listen, mayor's got to work together because we can't afford to be like the sanctuary city that we're supposed to be, which is to take in immigrants. Because he's like, you Republican governors from Republican states are just like sending folks to us and like we don't have the capacity. It makes it a little complicated because he's essentially saying the quiet part loud. And it's fascinating because I think a lot of New Yorkers, white New Yorkers in particular, but New Yorkers writ large, disagree with Eric Adams in theory, but in practice, they're fine with it because they're in theory, they're like, we should be a sanctuary city. We should be taking immigrants. Should these immigrants go to school with their kids? Um, well, my school, you know, we don't really have the capacity. It's like, should they live in your neighborhood? Well, not really. So it's like, so in theory, you want to help. But when the rubber hits the road, you actually don't want immigrants in the city, new immigrants. So I think, you know, the role of any mayor is really difficult. I do think that because Eric Adams is a former police officer, he leans towards when we have a problem, like police fix it. Many of us who have lived in cities know that that is the opposite of what communities oftentimes need. It's like, how about you take a fraction of that money that you keep giving to police departments that we keep seeing data that says it doesn't work? And how about you put it in after school programs? How about you keep it in the library? How about you put it towards your education budget? How about you put it towards some sort of infrastructure and community housing or like whatever it may be? Like, granted, we have 500,000 people in federal housing, like housing projects, and their disinvestment in public housing has been egregious and atrocious and disheartening. So like, yes, the city is trying to supplement where the federal government has failed, failed people and families and also New York City. 
But it's like, but we know. We have had data that shows us this. I'm not a, a data wonk all the time, but like the data has shown us if you invest in education, if you invest in housing, if you invest in sort of activities for children, whether it's sports or art or music or whatever it is to keep them occupied and tucker them out, we will make sure, and we have seen that crime goes down. Teenage pregnancies and STDs go down. Like people going to jail goes down. Like all the things that we want to work on, allegedly, will be decreased if we make the investment on the front end of the boat, not on the back end. Housing someone at Rikers is way more expensive than actually educating them for a school year with after-school programs. So it's like, so why aren't we doing this? We have so much public policy data that keeps telling us the same thing, yet we can't seem to figure out the problem. It's like, it's because the quote-unquote problem is with Black and Latino people in cities. And so like, that is what's so enraging for a lot of people right now, because when you look at the four largest cities who all have Black mayors, and somehow we can't seem to solve these systemic problems. So when you've got Lori Lightfoot, who keeps giving money to the police, you've got Eric Adams, who many people are like, he is the police. You know, Karen Bash just got there, so we'll see how she does. And then we've got Sylvester Turner in Houston, who's like, you know, he's trying to do his thing, but it's like, it's also Texas. So he's tied in with like a wild state government and federal government as well. But it's like, you know, Eric Adams is a moderate to conservative, as is our governor. So Aaron, as I say, we've got a big tent. We've got these blue, we've got a blue mayor and a blue governor, but like they feel purple. And sometimes their behavior is is red, if I'm going to speak in color terms. It sounds like he at least got the jobs memo, if anything. He keeps proposing jobs programs. That's a good thing. Listen, and I'll say this, I'll say this about Eric Adams, because- I wrote a piece about him in the Times when he first got elected. These people were like, ah! And I'm like, he's been here a month. Stop calling for his resignation. So, like, I do also understand, and I think he understands this too. He's a Black man. And so he's being judged by totally different criteria. Because, like, let's be clear. Bill de Blasio were a Black man. He'd be under the jail, okay? He never would have gotten a second term. And, like, they would have been on him like white on rice. So, like, Eric Adams is dealing with constraints in the press, where it's like, I have a lot of friends in the press who are lovely and smart and hardworking. But like, sometimes they're beyond nitpicky and like, they don't understand race. They are too young to understand the complexities of like a Dinkins to Adams administration. And like, they're white and in their white enclaves and they all live in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn. Like, they roll together. And so like, they don't have a lot of diversity. That's one part of the problem. The other part though is the mayor can be antagonistic to the press. So it's like sometimes when they call him out, it's like they're doing their jobs and it's a valid question on certain things. But then other times, you know, when they're asking valid questions and he doesn't want to deal with it, he's like, you all are young and you're racist. And it's like, no, like sometimes, yes. In this instance, no. And so this is a man who has like a a large ego. I mean, listen, you're mayor of New York City, so like you're allowed to have it. But I think it's, you know, I... Because the way white people in New York talk about, and I have a lot of issues with Eric Adams and policies because I tend to be obviously uh, significantly to the left of him. But I find myself defending him a lot because there are a lot of white people who talk about Eric Adams in a coded, racialized way that rubs me the wrong way. And I'm like, just because you disagree with him doesn't mean he's stupid. 
like, first of all. And that always makes me upset because it's, it's the same thing that I heard in college when people would talk about Condoleezza Rice. It's like, she's so dumb. I'm like, listen, I don't get down with her, but there's one thing that that woman is not, and that's dumb. Like, so that lazy argument of like, just because Eric Adams does things that you disagree with, it's like, oh, he's just so dumb. And I'm like, you know what? He won fair and square and he caters to a population of New York that has never been catered to. And so there are a lot of upper middle-class and middle-class white folks, people that I know, people in like my voting block that are apoplectic because they've never had a mayor in recent memory who's just like, I don't have time for you. You didn't vote for me. You didn't get me here. So like, I'll get to you when I get to you. And like, yes, I will throw you bones and like do policies that you agree with. But like, I'm going to work on these rats over here. And so then he becomes this joke about like, oh, he's obsessed with the rats. And I'm like, yeah, but have you ever met the one who's like literally living with rats and like they can't eat, they can't sleep, they can't raise their kids. They've got all these health issues just from stress alone. They can't keep food in their refrigerator. So they're broke as shit because they're actually eating out every day. Like, there are buildings and communities that actually do have rat infestations. And he's the only person that like is taking it seriously. So like there are issues that he has latched onto that like the press teases him about. But I'm like, but we're still talking about thousands of people that he's actually looking at for the first time. But then he's like, more cops. And I'm like, ah, oh, you're killing me. You're killing me. So I don't know. I It's also, it's only been a year. So like, I'm willing to kind of, keep looking at the landscape. But I do feel like this man runs across the ideological spectrum for me. That's like, it's dizzying because one day he'll do something where I'm like, right on, yes, brother. And then the next day I'm like, who is this man? And let's get him out of office immediately. So like, it's just, I I, I can't call it right now. Aaron, how are you in, in California? Like, like, how are you seeing the politics there as compared to in New York? Is it, is it all palm trees? <laughs> I'll be honest, I've been kind of um, not dug in. I mean, I'm very happy, I, you know, that to see Karen Bass for mayor, but I haven't really dug into California yet. I'm still fighting it a little bit. Um, so I, can't, I know, I I'm see your really, posts. I love them. <laughs> I'm still fighting it. The gas prices there are astronomical, right? Well, they're, they're a little bit, it's so funny. They, they came down a bit, right? I mean, so like I saw gas yesterday for like 440, something like that. And I'm like, okay. But there's right up the street from my house, inexplicably, there's a gas station, never changes. 7.30, 7. I'm like, why do you think you can charge that amount? It's just $7 all the time. I, I don't understand it, but whatever. I don't go nowhere. <laughs> so it's fine. I'm like a regular now, Marina. I go to work and then I come home. Like it's bananas. I don't even know this life. So I'm going to be doing a lot more stand-up in 2023 because I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> I guess I, I know LA is not a place for me. I'm not a California. It's, it's so funny because my uncle's, you know, lives there. I, I used to go there in the summertime when I lived on the South side of Chicago, you know, in not such a great neighborhood. I, you know, I've moved around a lot in Chicago, but we were struggling during that time. And I remember they sent me to my uncle who does well. And I still wanted to get back to Chicago. Because I was like, I can't take, and I was in my teen, I was in a teenager, and I knew, I said, it's not for me. California is just it's not for me. Spread out. It's like, because when I think about it, it's like, well, what, it, what are the things? I've been doing a bit about it. Like, okay, I feel like I'm not supposed to like it out here. Just like on some gang shit. Like, no, I'm from the East Coast, you know? And so, 
But then when I try to think of like the reasons I don't like it, I'm like, okay, they have all the things. It's not like it's another, it's not the move. It's Los Angeles. The weather's nice. What about driving? I mean, I lived, I lived in Jersey, so I don't mind oh. it. You know what right. I mean? Right. So, but it's very spread out. Like nothing's near, you know, I just feel like it's a very spread out city, especially, I mean, for work, for stand up, it's like, it's very, it's very different and not comparable. But I'm like, and I was doing a bit when I was home over a break, you know, and I was saying like, it's hard to, it just, it just doesn't, you know what I mean? Like there's not the electricity. I'm like, but then the things that we pride ourselves in is like, like in New York, it's like, oh, this is, you know, it's just trauma. Like the shit that I'm like, you're like, this is a city that never sleeps. And it's like, we should take naps. Like, you know what I mean? Like when you start thinking about, <laughs> so I'm trying to be more open to it. My friend turned me on to this um, series by this pastor and it's on YouTube and it's called Here is Holy, right? And it's all about how we always make plans. You know, how when I do this, then I'll do this. When I accomplish this goal, then I can do this. Um, when I move to that new place, I'll put my pictures up. I'll do, you know. And the whole idea is about where you are, you need to be your best. So for whatever season you're in, he, make where you are, make here holy. Like, don't wait, you know, like right now I'm saying, well, I don't know where I'm going to live, you know, when my lease is up in Jersey. Am I going to move out here full time? You know, whatever. Like, I don't have my stuff out here. I don't feel settled. But it's like, no, try to make the best of where you are because you're there for a purpose at this time. So don't wait until the next thing before you, you know what I mean? So I've been trying to be more focused in that and, you know, going into this year going, okay, I'm here. Like, stop fighting it. Like make the best of it, engage, hang out, you know. Um, so I'm sorry, I'm no longer answering your question, but yeah. So I'm not. I'm trying not to fight LA, even though all my cute. Clothes I are- hear you though. I I totally get it, Aaron. I mean, I'm not a you know. I I don't want to trash LA, but I totally get it. I am with you. <laughs> I'm I'm rooting for you to make it better for yourself there. Cause I don't know what I would do either, even though I would be, I know you love your job. I know that, but it's like, Oh, whenever someone I know goes to LA, I'm like, just, you could call me anytime you want if you need. <laughs> Cause it can be so like, it, 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 it feels like a lo- <laughs> Yeah. I was so happy to see you in New York too, at the cellar. I was like, I was like, you look so, like, like I, I just knew you were like, oh my god, I'm back. I'm doing stage, yeah, you know, you like. Saw me crying when I was leaving, I was like crying all. I didn't the- want to say it, but yeah, like, I, I, like, I don't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> Full on crying on the street by myself. But, but it's all coming. It's it's gonna be all rewarding. It's like, uh, you know, you do these things so that eventually, you know, things will. You'll be like, oh, that was so much pain, but look yeah, where so I am now. So you're not eating cat food when you're sixty. Like that's why I'm doing it. <laughs> Yeah. And I agree with you. Like you do have to make your, I'm not moving out of my space in Harlem. I, you know, I've, for how many years I've been talking about moving to Vermont. <laughs> I love Vermont. I was just there for the, uh, the Wassail Festival, I guess with Wassail, Wassail Festival in Woodstock, Vermont. And it was so much fun. And it's so like, oh my God, peaceful. It'd be a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of white, but they do, I will say as I say this on stage, as far as white people go, they are the best of the whites. Yeah, you know? they're good whites. They're good whites. They don't, you know, you go places and you don't feel like 
Like whenever I've been in Vermont, I don't feel them staring at me. Yeah. New in, Hampshire, in, though, the evil twin. No, thank you. Yeah. But they, uh, they do look at me and it's it's the over liberalism of them going, do you want to come into my house and use the bath? You know, like they're overly like that in Vermont. I'll take it. I'll take that. But um, we do have to get out. I don't want to keep you too long. I know you got things to do, Aaron, and I know you're busy, Christina. And this has been a wonderful way to also break in the new year with two amazing sisters doing it. Smart, funny, talented. I'll start with you, Aaron. Tell our listeners where they can find you and a friends like us. All right. Well, you can find me on that sofa over there because that's where I'm. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to do better. Um, <laughs> you can find me at EJ the comic on any social media. Upshaw's second half of season two. You can find that on Netflix starting February 16th. And uh, I think that's it. I'm not really doing a ton other than that right now. And I guess with friends like us, I mean, you can kiki and still feel like home even when you're 3,000 miles away. You're going to make me cry. Thank you, Aaron. You know, I know you're busy, so I really appreciate you always taking time out to come on Friends Like Us. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Christina. Um, yeah, and I forgot that Aaron's an Eagles fan like me. Ooh, um, go birds. I know. I was trying to get tickets to Saturday, but I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, I did text a former mayor. I was like, so if you got any tickets floating around... Um, Okay, so what am I doing? I have a podcast on the GRIO called The Blackest Questions, like a game show podcast uh, where I ask different guests five questions about black history. Yeah, you're going to come on the podcast. And then my guests get to learn a little bit more about who I've invited. But also, you know, my argument is black history is American history. So some of the questions, you know, they start off easy and then they get a little more difficult. Um, And then folks get bragging rights, whether they answer them right or wrong. And what else? And then I start school on Wednesday. I'm back in the classroom. So that's always exciting to teach the future minds of America. And I'm very excited for my spring semester to begin. And with friends like us, you can just be with smart, funny Black women and feel like you're home. Yes. Oh, my God. Thank you, Christina, so much. You are and We're almost going to have our decade of friendship soon. Yes. And we have to go and have our lunch or dinner where you could okay. scream, oh, my God, you're out. <laughs> I mean, listen, you all just uh, you all are gold. I'm going to go wash my face and do like face yoga so I can look like comedians. That's my goal. With friends like us, they give you face goals to, to look like a black female comedian. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate you both for being here. Marina Franklin here. Go to my website always, marinafranklin.com. Also, you know, join us on our Patreon page. It's really important. Now we have, you see TV's backstage. And I think our other guest is, I, I think she's still here. If you were here, still here. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. So share it with a friend that we do this backstage. I really appre- appreciate you for watching us live and all your comments TV for the past. It's really great. And don't forget, we do a live stream on Saturdays where we promote the podcast. And that's on YouTube. So just go to YouTube channel. I'll be putting up some of the videos from our podcast. Not all. With friends like us, you can reunite with intelligent, strong, but also vulnerable black women that are doing it in 2023. Thank you so much. Check Check us us out. out.